Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I'm so used to saying that line. Um, at first, I couldn't even get the listen, learn, and love in the right order, listeners, when we were doing these three years ago. Now that just comes pretty natural to me as we're in our 600-some-odd episodes. And as I've said before, it's not really much about me. It's about the guests that bravely step forward and share their story. That's what drives this podcast. And um, I had no idea that this would be the where the direction the podcast would take us when we first started. And it was episode four that I invited an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint on the podcast, and that's really the direction we've gone, as well as other Latter-day Saints stepping forward to share their stories. But today we'll hear from a gay Latter-day Saint who's just joining um, the many that are willing to share his story. And I, 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 we say a prayer before we start and just recognize how much courage it takes and how brave um, these guests are. And um, once in a while, I get a message. I got a message in the last couple of weeks from a young man, um, closeted young man, high school age kid. And he said, you know, your guests on your podcast are keeping me alive. I am not out to anybody. I put my headphones in at night. No one knows what I'm listening to, except I'm listening to your guests. And they are giving me hope for my future. So there may be some of you listening right now that are in that boat. And I'm honored that um, somebody like Stephen Monson, who is stepping forward to share his story, um, is on the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you very much, Richard. I'm honored to be here. Um, I saw a Facebook post that Stephen wrote, and I said, Stephen, would you like to be on the podcast? And he was a really wonderful post, and he agreed to be on the podcast. And as I'm looking at his outline, I think he'll share a terrific story. Just a little bit of background, we turn it over to Stephen. He, you know, he's a gay Latter-day Saint. He's 26. He's born in Richfield. Um, he, knows my, his, he knows my only missionary companion from Richfield. I'm probably Stephen's father's age, and his father knows my missionary friend that's in Richfield. So I have a soft spot for Richfield because that missionary companion is, that missionary who was never my companion is a terrific missionary. Um, Stephen served a mission. He's um, enrolled in college in Utah County, also works at a credit union in Utah County, served a mission to Wichita, Kansas, a place that I lived for a year. Um, I love that area. But with that, I'll just, I'm looking at his outline. It's a terrific outline. He's really brave to do this. And our joint prayer is this helps you if you're younger and closeted or older and uncloseted or a family or friend that's looking to better support a gay Latter-day Saint, that Stephen's story will help you. And impressions will come into your mind on what you need to do um, in your individual journey or to help others. So I'll turn it over to you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to, to be here. And I'm personally, my greatest hope out of, out of this is that if there's ever, if there's even just one person that um, can be helped by my by me sharing my experiences and maybe being a little more vulnerable than I usually am, um, then, then I'll, I'll consider it as a success. Um, yeah, as Richard said, I'm 26 years old from Richfield, Utah. Um, parents had a big family. I'm this number six out of eight children. Um, we actually have two sets of twins in the family. I'm sandwiched right between them, um, as the true middle child in the family. But, um, I, I was, uh, as a kid, I was a really, really, quiet kid um very complex complex wow contemplative 
and um, liked to kind of, I liked my space to kind of think, I guess. Um, my brothers and my, most of my older siblings were all very into sports. Um, I was never really particularly drawn to them as much. Um, I, I did track and cross country in high school, but that was about the extent of my athletic career. Um, when I, when I was younger, I, I never really thought that I was gay. Um, I don't even remember when I first heard the term. Um, but I, I, I the, the thought had never really occurred to me when I was younger. I, I saw a statistic once that said the average kid today knows by about 12 or 13. Um, I wouldn't really count myself on, on that. Um, I was about 17 years old when I had the first realization that, oh, I might be gay. Um, I just thought I was the type of kid that cared deeply about his friends and didn't realize that um, at the time I probably had a bit of a crush on one of them. And it was not really a very positive experience. Not, not because he knew or anything like that. I don't, I don't think he knew. I don't think I knew at the time that that's what it was, but he was a little manipulative is all we'll say. Um, when I was 17 years old was when I first had the thought that I realized that I might be gay. Um, I can still kind of remember that night a little bit. It was not long after state cross country, my uh, senior year of high school and something had happened. I don't really remember what. And I remember thinking and having the thought like, Oh, I might be this way. And I remember personally being overwhelmed with a, some not very positive emotions. I was filled with shame. I was really, really embarrassed. I didn't want that to be my reality. Um, and I, I remember rolling out of bed. It was the middle of the night. I remember rolling out of bed and I knelt by my bedside and I just prayed and I just cried for, I'm not sure how long. I don't remember how much I slept that night. Um, and as with most people's journey, mine's ongoing. Um, I, I don't ever want to come across as though I'm telling other people how they should live their lives. Um, my early relationship with the church was a very, very warm, positive experience. My, my dad was in a stake presidency for 19 years. Wow. Um, <laughs> ten, nine as a counselor and uh, 10 as president. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, he was put in two years before I was born and um, by Russell M. Nelson, if I recall correctly. Um, and I never sat next to my dad in church until I was 17 years old. Wow. Um, but the church has always been a very, very huge um, influence on my life. It's been a very big part of it. My mom has had her share of calling. She's been in Young Women's Primary Relief Society. She was Relief Society president, um, I think, for the bulk of the time I was on my mission and even a while when I came home. Um, we've been very, very, very involved in the church. Um, and I... Growing up, I loved participating in my priesthood responsibilities. Um, some of my favorite things, one of those was when I was a priest and we would have, um, we always called it home bounce. We would take the sacrament to um, those members of our congregation who, um, due to health reasons, usually they, they couldn't um, come to church themselves. Um, and in my ward, they were usually elderly widows. And I had a soft spot for them. I, and to this day, I still do. Um, I can still remember one, one of them. I used to bring her a um, program 
um, of the ward um, going over the sacrament meeting agenda. And I would remember all of the ward business. I'd write notes on it for her to tell her all, all the things that were happening. And we would kind of go over it every, every week after I brought her the sacrament. And it was one of my most uh, uh, tender experiences in, in my um, service in the church. Um, I, I remember growing up and always thinking that I had never really um, felt a huge desire to date. Oddly enough, when I turned 16, I was the only one out of all my brothers. Maybe my little brother was different. I don't know. But I was the only one out of all my older brothers that um, actually asked a girl out on their first date. They got asked out on their first date. So, But uh, I remember thinking that... Um, well, we don't date before 16, so it's not important. And then I remember turning 16, going on dates with girls and thinking like, well, it's okay if I don't really feel anything right now because um, we shouldn't date seriously in high school. And I think as time went on, I think that's probably why when I was 17 years old, I started to figure out like, oh, well, I probably should be feeling at least something. Um, and I'm not. Um, but by the time I graduated high school, after I had that thought, I determined that I would bury it down and we wouldn't really talk about it. I, I would never talk about it with myself um, ever again. I didn't want to really go through it. Um, and I remember feeling like I was not, felt like I shouldn't serve a mission um, when I graduated high school, but I was too, I had nobody, nobody knew that I was going through this. Um, through no fault of their own, um, of course. Um, and so I decided to just take a semester at Snow College um, rather than going on a mission. And that semester quickly turned into two. Um, and that first semester at Snow College was incredibly difficult for me um, as an individual. I remember um, struggling a lot with feelings of loneliness. Um, I only knew two people in the entire city of Ephraim. Um, it was my sister and her husband. They were there and thank goodness they were there. Um, I, my depression got so bad that, um, at least two or three times a week, I just didn't roll out of bed and I missed my classes. Um, it was not very, it was not a very positive time in my life. I struggled a little bit with self-harm and, um, I used to actually, um, I used to, it's, maybe dumb and feels a little melodramatic. I don't know, but I used to write notes to myself. Um, and they, they were actually not positive notes. Um, and I think looking back, it was mostly me just trying to, I think, get these feelings out of, out of me. And I didn't know who I could talk to about them. Um, I even struggled with a little bit of suicidality at some points. And I used to take some of these lonely walks, usually towards the evening or at night, um, to just get myself out of my dorm and to try and, bring myself up a bit. Um, and it was an incredibly lonely time for me. Um, I remember, I think at the very worst of it, I finally decided something needed to change a little bit. And so I worked up the courage to finally like confess these feelings that I was feeling, um, to my YSA Bishop. And he was a very, very good man. Um, I can still remember him there. He, he got tears in his eyes when I when I told him that I was struggling with my, my feelings, my sexuality, um, had an unrequited crush on one of my friends and it was tearing me up. And, 
And he cried with me. He told me, thank you for telling him. Um, but I was so embarrassed after I talked to him that, um, I shut it all back down again. And so we're not going to talk about it ever again. And I remember him actually, he, to, to my Bishop's credit, he tried, he, uh, he tried on several occasions to, uh, to talk to me about it. He would call me into his office there for a while. I think I was meeting with him weekly in his office and two or three weeks in a row. He, he would ask me about who, how are you, how are you doing with these feelings, Stephen? And I just kind of shut him down and said, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I prayed and they went away, which was not true. Um, and I don't think I'm the only one that's ever done that. <laughs> um, and he was, he was really, really good. Um, about that time, I, it was that time that I realized what my crush really, really was and that it was really unrequited and it really did a number on my mental health even further. I really struggled with self-loathing thinking, I, 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 I don't want to feel this. I, I shouldn't feel this way. This is not right. This is not what God would want me to feel. I shouldn't feel this way. I've done something wrong. Um, and, and that's why I have these feelings. There's something I've done wrong. That's why I have these feelings. Um, and so my bishop recommended that I would attend 12-step programs, even went with the, to meet with me for the first couple of, of meetings. Um, but I could never bring myself to um, really talk about what was really going on with me. Um, talked about other addictions, um, pornography usage, and different things that way. Um, which, to me, I don't think really hit the nail on the head. I was struggling with self-loathing because of my self-sexuality. And I think it just let, developed some other self-destructive behaviors. Um, I tried to date girls while I was at college. I went on a couple of dates, um, even ended up going on a group date with my brother and his future wife on their first date. Um, and it was very fun, but um, I learned no matter how hard I could try, I just couldn't develop those kinds of feelings for the young women that I would take out. Um, and it really, I, I, it really made me not like the per person I was. Um, and, and it just helped me grow increasingly frustrated at my circumstances. Fortunately, the semester ended, I was home for a little bit with Christmas and I think that the holiday break helped. Um, in my second semester, went much, much better. It was still a challenge. Um, I was able to meet, um, some friends. Um, one of them was a young lady who I'm still, she's one of my closest friends in the entire world. Um, and so if she hears this cat, I love you. And, and I'm so grateful I have you. Um, she was a tremendous strength to me and it still is, um, today. She was actually one of the very first people I ever fully came out to, um, after my mission. Um, and by the end of my second semester, I had figured that I should, for some reason, my brain had landed on the logic of if I go and serve a mission and I work really, really hard, um, and if I be the best missionary I can be, if I'm the most obedient elder that I can possibly be, then maybe God will fix me and I won't have these feelings anymore. Um, and so that was a key motivation, an unspoken motivation behind me sending my papers out. There's a lot of other reasons I felt it was what I should do. I knew it was something that my parents had deeply wanted. Um, but I also know that they would have never pressured me to do it if they knew I, if, if I had ever expressed that I didn't want to go. 
Um, and so I opened my mission call to the Kansas Wichita mission um, on July 3rd in 2016. Um, it was a very, very special day to me. And I entered the MTC on August 24th, 2016, which is actually my dad's dad's birthday. Um, and he, he passed away a few years before that. Um, and I was very, very, very nervous. I met my MTC companion. He was a great guy. Um, he was, a, he was an absolute, um, saving grace for me. Um, I was so nervous. I didn't know what to expect. I wasn't sure what was going to happen to me or anything that way. And he was this really, really energetic, charismatic, um, happy, excited elder. He was just ready to go out and knock on a million doors all at once. And it gave me something to lean on a little bit until I could develop my confidence. And so I'm very grateful for him. He, he did a lot to help me that way um, without even knowing that he was helping me. Um, I, I, it was, the MTC was really quite a wonderful experience. I had the opportunity to listen to a lot of general authorities when I was there, had a lot of wonderful experiences. Um, I did struggle with a few of the elders that I shared a room with, um, with something that my mission president would later refer to as locker room talk. Um, just how they would discuss girls and different things that way. I, um, it was just sometimes very, very hard for me to, to sit there and listen to. Um, and I landed in Kansas on October 4th, um, which is my grandma's birthday. Um, and I met my mission president that night and we had a very powerful first interview. Um, I didn't open up to him then um, with everything that I had felt and that I'd struggled with for years. Um, but he was a very, very good, very, very kind, compassionate man. Um, one who I still admire and look up to today. Um, he introduced me to my trainer the next day at the mission office and we were off to Topeka, Kansas, which was my first area. And my mission honestly was something that I treasure very, very much. Um, I met so many wonderful people and had so many wonderful experiences that I just, I love, um, and people that I still keep in contact with. Um, and I've always wanted to go back, just hasn't quite worked out yet, but, uh, um, always wanted to go back. Um, and I don't ever want to minimize or, um, invalidate anyone else's experience. Um, and I don't ever want to sit there and be like, my experiences are so much harder than anyone else's. Um, but I think being a, a closeted gay missionary has some unique challenges that, um, some, that not all the other missionaries have to deal with at times. Um, for me, I spent my entire mission, um, doubting my own worthiness, um, because something would happen. We would be walking down the street and some, an attractive young man are about our age would walk by and I would feel guilty every time I, every time something like that would happen where I just thought like, well, Steven, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think that like, that's not how we're supposed to, that's not what God wants. You, you shouldn't feel that way. And I would mentally berate myself um, anytime that happened, which just undermined my uh, confidence a lot. And, but I did my best to be obedient and to follow mission rules. Um, to the best of my ability in an effort to uh, change who I was. And as one can imagine, when the mission goes on, when three months turns into six and when six turns into a year and nothing's changed, if anything, the feelings have grown stronger. It was frustrating. It was very, very difficult. I, I struggled sometimes with my, um, 
zone leaders um, um, with sometimes overhearing homophobic comments that were being made. Um, in their defense, they didn't know that anybody who was listening was gay, but it was still difficult. Uh, I remember one night in particular, I heard one of them say that if he was gay, he would um, commit suicide, which wow. is not. And it was, it was hard because my mission culture was very big on sustaining your leaders, um, which was very, very hard for me to do when that was my zone leader. Um, and so there was sometimes some difficulty there. All that being said, I loved my mission. It was a beautiful experience. I met people I loved in every single area I served in. Um, I, I loved connecting with the people, um, talking with the people. Um, it, it, it almost didn't matter to me if we were, if they, if they had no interest in getting baptized, I liked to connect with the people. I wanted to know what they, what made them tick. I wanted to connect with them. Um, and when I was about eight months out, I did actually finally open up to my mission president and he, um, was very, very, very kind to me. Um, I can still remember him looking at me. He smiled. He had a little bit of tears in his eyes and he just said, Elder Monson, I'm aware that if I'm not the first person you've told, I'm one of the first. And I just want to thank you for that trust that you put in me. Um, and I want you to know, secondly, that this doesn't change anything about my relationship with you. I still think the world of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, and of course, he he talked about the family proclamation, different things that way. I'm um but his initial response has always resounded with me of just the the thank you. Um, because it was, I, it had never occurred to me that it was such a deep level of trust on my part, but it, but it, it really was, it was something that nobody else really, really knew about me. And I, uh, and just, I don't know if this is a side note or anything like that, but something about my mission that stands out to me is in every area I served in, I either met someone who was gay or one of my dearest investigators or a member that I was very, very close to, somebody that I was very, very close to in every single area I served in was either gay or knew someone very intimately that was gay. And they would ask me um, about the church and gay marriage. And it was, at the time, it was hard. I gave the standard missionary answers on those things um, because I didn't know what else to do. I, I didn't know what was really going to happen with myself anyway. Um, and missionaries are in a difficult position as is on the issue. Um, but when I look back on it, I like to think that God was putting those people in my life, um, to just essentially kind of whisper to me that, um, that it's okay. It's okay for me to be who I am, that he, that he loved these people that he was putting in my life. And that at some time, at some future time, when I'm ready to admit it to myself, He'll love me too. Um, and he'll love me just as much. Um, and that's just looking back, that's one of the most tender things I can think of with my mission. And perhaps one of the most important lessons I could take from my mission. Um, because um when I went on my mission, I couldn't even admit to myself that I was gay. But by the time 
I came home, I was at least able to say that to myself. Um, I had said it to my mission president and I was at least able to um, mention it to myself and acknowledge it to myself, which may have been its own powerful conversion for, for me as a missionary. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful thing. When I, when I was getting ready to come home, there was a part of me that very much didn't want to come home um, because I love the people and everything that way. But also because I knew that with coming home would come the reality of life. Um, as a missionary, I was kind of in this bubble a little bit and, and felt a little bit extra protected from my sexuality in a way where I didn't have to think about it because nobody could date as a missionary. Nobody can date. Um, but now that I'm coming home, I would watch as mission companions and, and elders and sisters that I served with would fall in love and would find dates. And I knew that it was only a matter of time. Um, if I can tease my mom a little bit, I figured I had about two weeks when I came <laughs> home before she would start asking me um, about what my plans were with dating. <laughs> and that was my most, um, um, that was my greatest source of trepidation actually of coming home was what, what would I say to my parents? Um, Cause I think by the time I had come home, I had decided that I needed to tell them at least I was actually very much determined not to come out publicly. Um, by the time I came home, I was like, this is a secret that I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to carry my whole life. Um, but I think family should know. Um, and so I remember coming home and, and I, I did, I gave it about two weeks to a month, somewhere in that range before I um, really started thinking I needed to say something. Um, because it's just how families are. They, they get curious. And um, I remember asking my mission president for advice on it. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but I do remember he just said, if you feel very strongly that you, that you need to tell them, then, then you should tell them and you should prayerfully wait for the, the right moment. And for me, that first moment came, happens to come first with my dad. Um, Growing up, my dad has always been the kind of dad that he says when, well, before we would get into a race and cross country or track, my dad would come find me and he'd put an arm around me and he'd ask me how I was. And I'd say, I was nervous. And he'd said, don't be, you could come in dead last. You'll still be my son and I'll still be your dad and I'll still love you. So trying to take the the fear, the anxiety away from me by just saying like, you know, the, the, the absolute worst case scenario you can think of Stephen could happen. And guess what? You're still my son. I'm still your dad. And I still love you. Um, and I can remember we were driving home. He was in a mission presidency at the time and we were driving home somewhere. Um, and it had popped up in the conversation. And so I just came out to him there in the car driving home. And he looked at me and he put his, he put his hand, one hand on my knee and just gave it a squeeze and just said, I love you. Um, and we talked about it for the next several hours that night when we got home. Um, but he was very, very supportive. It was the same thing. It was the exact same thing. He said, no matter what happens, I want you to know that you're my son, that I'm your father, that I love you and that that will never change. Um, and if I can be completely honest, the biggest regret I have in my own journey is I don't feel that I handled coming out to my mother. Um, the way I should have. 
I was so nervous to tell her that I asked that I asked my dad to to tell her. Um, and it was never because I felt like she would kick me out of the home. That was never a worry with my parents. I think deep down, I always knew that they wouldn't do that. Um, it's scary because it's a, it's a, a, a thing that you don't know exactly how they're going to react. But I remember I came home that night from being with friends after my dad had told her and she told me she had confronted me in our entryway in the house. And I could see that she had been crying. And at first it really bothered me because I thought I, I, not because of her crying. It was because Stephen, you made your mother cry. How, what kind of son are you? Um, but she looked at me and she said, I'm not crying because of what your dad told me. I'm crying because I realize now that you've been hurting for so long and I didn't know. And I wonder if there was something I could have done to help you. Um, and so that's just kind of who she is as a mother. Um, her kids are her happiness. If we hurt, she hurts. Um, if we're happy, she's happy. Um, and that's just always how she's been. But if I could change one thing, I wish I could have had her hear it from me. Um, but either way, my relationship with my parents couldn't be stronger. Um, I'm very grateful for them and the, the strengths that they are to me. Um, after telling them, I decided I needed to tell my, my siblings um, and in a big family, it was the debate of, do I tell everyone all at once or, or what? And so I decided, personally, I decided that I would um, come out through, through text because I, I figured that it would be easier for me in the long run if, uh, and maybe that's a little selfish of me, but I figured it would be easier in the long run to tell them over text where they can have their reaction. I don't need to. I don't know what the reaction is going to be. And I, it can give them the time to have their true reaction without worrying about hurting me. Um, and they can respond when they're ready. Um, happy to say that all seven of them responded within minutes of getting the text and like, and they were all extremely supportive, very, very, very um, vocal in that support of me. Um, and I'm so very grateful for each and every one of them. And I'm very, very lucky to have them and to have the family that I have. Um, and I know that not everyone gets that, um, unfortunately. And I feel very, very fortunate in that account. Um, and so the real adventure for me, actually, after coming out with family, was actually with my um, niece and my nephews. Um, my oldest sister has three kids and they've kind of, they kind of grew up with their uncle Steve who would go on dates with girls. And so I knew eventually that they would probably be ones I would have to tell my other nieces and nephews are so little that we haven't really addressed that. Um, but I remember um, sitting with my niece, she was 11 at the time. And I asked her, Kinley, what do you think of when you hear the word gay? And she said, bad. <laughs> uh, we it, it ended up being a really, really good conversation um in fact um i think just a year or two ago she's 14 now um just a year ago or so she looked at me once when i was driving her to the car somewhere driving her in the car somewhere 
And she looked at me and she said, Steve, I'm glad you told me you're gay. You're happier and more yourself now. Wow. Um, this is a 13 year old kid just to have that kind of insight and that compassion. I thought was really a, just a good example of how simple being an ally can be. Um, and I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at right now. The journey with everybody's ongoing. Um, I served in several singles wards over the years after I came home from my mission. Um, I was in my home, my home singles ward for a while. They, I was Sunday school president there. I was a Sunday school teacher when I went back to Ephraim and then I returned. Um, I moved up to Utah County actually to, to be closer to um, some of my siblings and most of my extended families in the Utah Valley. Um, And so I moved up there. Um, I tried to date girls while I was at college again. Um, and it didn't, it, it only just confirmed what I think I had already knew. Um, I went on a date with a young lady once and we had a really, really, really good time. Um, but I remembered thinking that I just couldn't envision myself, um, marrying her. Um, and so about that time, I quietly began going on dates with other guys and, I remember a feeling that it it just felt right, for lack of a better term. Um, It felt so normal to me. Um, And it really kind of helped me figure out that that is what I do want. Um, That I wanted a relationship um, which was something that I struggled with. I, I learned that I wanted that years ago, but I, I hated myself for wanting that and thinking, oh, well, Stephen, why do you want something that um, is a sin? Um, you shouldn't want that. Um, my thinking has evolved a little bit on that matter. Um, but it was a big adjustment actually to go into the dating world at, um, I think I was 22. Um, everybody else that all my other peers that I'd known had been going on dates since they were at least 16, some of them younger. Um, and I felt really, really behind the curve, um, which was its own struggle in and of itself. I'm feeling behind the curve, feeling like, and, and almost feeling a sense of, for, for me, it I almost, felt a sense of loss that I never had the, the, the teen romance that uh, so many of my friends and, and siblings had had. Um, so many uh, felt struggled sometimes overcoming the feeling that I had missed out on so much. Um, being able to come home and tell my mom about my first kiss um, or a first boyfriend, which we're still, the verdict's still out on that, but um, <laughs> just a lot of the little things. Um, and it, we're, we're getting there. It's a work in progress. I think, um, I think the phrase time heals all wounds is largely true. I think with a lot of time and healthy coping mechanisms, I think a lot of things heal, um, not immediately, maybe, and maybe not completely, but I think a lot of progress is made. Um, 
I learned over the years that I really struggled with that first crush that I had in high school. Um, with with it being unrequited and everything feeling very unlovable and and that I didn't deserve love and found myself even years later at college um, almost self-sabotaging a couple of potential relationships because I didn't feel that I I think deep down I didn't feel that I deserved it which is just something that I can't change now um, but is something that I very much regret. Um, and over time, my relationship with the church has proven to be complicated, I think, at the least. Um, I, I struggled t- at times feeling with feelings of anger, and sometimes even after f- things from the apostles have said, um, and, and really struggled with being angry at myself. Why am I, why am I angry if I believe he's an apostle? Why am I angry? He, um, and, and it's been a struggle learning to let go of that anger, but I know that it's, for me, it's something that I really want to do because I don't want to be an angry or bitter person, especially about something that so many of my family still love so, so much. And I love them and there's still so much in the church that I love. Um, and, and it'll always be my first uh, spiritual language, my first spiritual home. And so I, I want, I, for me, the latest part of my journey has been figuring out ways to, to let go of that anger and to move on. Um, and however that looks for me to find that peace in my life. Um, and that's pretty much where I'm at. Um, it's been a journey and I suspect it will continue to be a journey for probably the rest of my life. Um, and that if, if anybody can learn from it, then I I'll count it as a success. Um, if I can help anybody, um, my messages are always open. If there's ever a, a, a quiet closeted person who needs somebody to talk to, um, my messages are always open and, and I'll do what I, whatever I can to help. So I'm grateful for this opportunity, Richard. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Just a housekeeping thing. If people will link to your Facebook, are you on Instagram too? Um, I am. So we'll link to both of those in the show notes, listeners. And I'll put this on Facebook and Instagram so you can find Stephen if you want to DM him. (laughs) Um, I just... You know, like maybe a lot of you, there were things you said that really moved me, but I just wanted on behalf of all our listeners, thank you, Stephen, for your courage to share your story. Um, What you did took a lot of courage. I'm sure your 17-year-old self wouldn't ever imagined you'd be on a platform sharing your story as a gay Latter-day Saint. I think 20,000 people listen to these episodes, and I think that's a sign of just the journey you're on and your willingness to accept this part about you and being able to talk about it. And um, so respect, I think it's taken a lot of personal work and a lot of um, people that love you in your life, realizing you can love you, your relationship with heavenly father, your desire to serve and help other people. Uh, What would you say to your 17 year old self right now? So there's a time when you realized you're gay 
And that puts you in rightly, you know, I mean, not rightly so, but just with all the messaging society, the shame, embarrassment, self-loathing, what would you say to your 17-year-old self? I've, I've thought about that a lot, actually. Um, and I thought about it a lot, actually, when I was putting together some thoughts for this uh, podcast. Um, and I, I, I think that my, my greatest hope would be that I could get my 17-year-old self to understand that he's perfect as he is, that, that he's not broken, that there's nothing for him to be ashamed of. Um, and, and above all else, that maybe it's hard right now and maybe it's lonely right now, but it'll get better. Um, that um, even, even if mom and dad didn't accept him, which they did, um, but even if they didn't, he'd find people and he could build a family um, of people who do love and accept him, that, that he's never, he's never going to be alone. Um, and again, I just think that above all else to so just understand that there, that he, that God loves him and that he's not broken, that he's, he's perfect as he is. I love that answer. And, I believe the same thing, listeners. You've heard me talk about this, regular listeners, that I think everybody needs to look in the mirror and feel how they're created is the way they're intended to be created. And um, no one should look in the mirror and feel shame for um, who they are and how they're created. And my feeling that doesn't change church doctrine or church teachings. It just puts everybody on the same moral footing. So um, straight guys your age at 17 are going to have crutches and Guys that are, aren't straight are going to have crushes. And so I've learned as I've listened to so many to just normalize um, thoughts and feelings and crushes. I don't think that's a sin. Um, but I think if we feel like you've so eloquently described the shame and the self-loathing and the work and all the awful feelings that you felt that led to self-harm, I've learned self-harm is sometimes trading one pain for another pain. It's not a desire to displease God. It's just a, a way of surviving. Mm-hmm. But I think um, you help us understand just how awful you felt because of just how you felt. It's not like you did anything wrong here. Um, and you're a lot smiling and you know that now. But that's where I hope as a society, as a church, we can just learn to just flood the airways with kind things about all Latter-day Saints, particularly those walking off a more complicated road like um, gay and lesbian, bisexual, Latter-day Saints, they should be, because I think it helps them connect with God and helps them to feel that who they are is a good thing and can get past the, you know, potentially the decades and a lifetime of of hating who they are and wishing it would go away. And just that cycle that, you know, you spent a decade in it, you may still have some of that, but you're not 56. on this podcast talking about 40 years of this road, you're 26. And that to me is a credit to you. It's a credit to the improvement in society. Um, And I recognize you deserve that desire to serve that mission, just wanting to bless people, but also come home straight. And, you know, you were talking about just your desire to bring the gospel to people. Then you had these thoughts, you know, you saw a cute guy and you're open about that. And, and then you may, you didn't say this in the podcast, but some with scrupulosity then would think, well, that that person's eternal salvation is dependent on me 
being a completely worthy missionary, including not have any thoughts at all that are inappropriate. So I am, my thoughts are preventing that person's eternal salvation from happening. And I don't know, uh, someone with scrupulosity kind of has that. I don't know if you had that, but it's just, it's an added layer of pain you feel because your thoughts are preventing someone from finding the gospel. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Stephen. Oh, I definitely do. I definitely struggled with that in a lot of different capacities in my life. Um, I was always one that put a lot of that pressure on myself that I needed to be at this kind of standard. And that if I'm not, I'm withholding other people from, from their salvation and, and, and just a lot of different things. And that's, that's why I would, that's why I would mentally berate myself as like, Stephen, you shouldn't think that way about them, about that person. You, you don't want to influence their salvation. You have good vocabulary. Mentally berate myself. <laughs> That's painful. Oh, well, thank you. Um, my mom would tell you that when I was two years old, I asked my siblings what the commotion was about. <laughs> um, I, so I'm just moved by your story. Um, respect for your mission president. I admire you coming out to that bishop and your mission president. Those both were good experiences. Uh, sometimes we pivot right to the proclamation of the family. Maybe that happened. My thoughts on that is that's sort of what we pivot to a lot of times that answers the questions for you. I saw a tweet that sort of said, well, just turn to the proclamation of the family. It answers all the questions for a gay Latter-day Saint. And as you know, and I've learned to come to understand that just may just remind you of what's not possible for you. If you do feel like you can marry a, a girl and be in a mixed orientation marriage, then that is, a, and I think I've done enough podcasts with people that feel impressed that's their path. That's a valid path. But if you feel, and this is part of you writing your own story, that I don't think I can marry a girl, then there's really no way for the proclamation of the family to be possible in your life. You have two choices now. You can be celibate your whole life, um, but that still doesn't bring you into eternal marriage. Or you can be in a same-sex marriage, and that doesn't bring you internal marriage. So I just recognize, as we teach the proclamation of family, which we have it up in our home listeners, um, we also recognize nuance around that, and that that can be a difficult document for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Not all. I don't want to paint a broad brush, but every story is different. And sometimes we can even take language of that proclamation of family and talk about Talk about gay pivot and just talk about the realities of a gay Latter-day Saint not knowing how to sort of that's outside of their control to make active in their life and and sort of recognizing the reality of their life and what we can do then to support them. Any thoughts on that, Stephen? Um, yeah. Um I for one definitely um I, I don't ever want to say that the way I live my life is the way that all LGBTQ Latter-day Saints need to live their lives. Um, I definitely um, want to, um, eh, how do I put it, allow people to the, to the use of their own agency. Um, and I, f for me, um, with the family proclamation, the, the line about death, disability, and other circumstances may require individual adaptation is something that I've hung on to personally in my life. Um, other people may take it as a more in the more traditional approach. That's their prerogative. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with my father in heaven about the family proclamation and 
I, I agree. I don't, uh, f- for me at least, it, it was always a little bit of a, of a painful experience when people always pivoted to it really, really fast. Um, and, and for me that, that it was never a very productive discussion. Um, I mean, well, not never, it, depending on the tone and, and the, the speed of the pivot, <laughs> um, sometimes impacted whether or not that was a productive dis- discussion. Um, and that's just where I've been with my life. Uh, for me, I decided that I needed a little bit of space um, to, to uh, think and to find myself spiritually. Um, but that doesn't mean that I think that um, everybody should do that. If, if a mixed orientation marriage works for, for one person, who am I to, <laughs> who am I to tell them that they're wrong? Um, I know that for me, myself, I, I, I tried to date girls. I also tried the celibate path forever and the, the loneliness and that feeling was just, it was too much for me. Um, and so I've had a lot of conversations with my heavenly father on the path that I have chosen to take. And I feel that he loves me. Um, and I feel that, that he is, I, I, I don't know. I still feel that he's with me. I still feel that I have a relationship with my father in heaven, um, and my savior. Um, and I just feel like we're treading into a little bit of the unknown, perhaps, but but at least I'm not alone in it. It's a great answer. Um, your sort of maturity um, is really remarkable. Um, the grace you give to other people to walk their path, and I think it helps us say, let's give the same grace to you. And um, I love your relationship with Heavenly Father. And um, as I'm meeting with people that are walking this road, that's you don't need this advice, but I say you've got to develop your relationship with Heavenly Father. You've got to ask Heavenly Father how he feels about your sexuality. Often that's one of the most important stepping stones because you realize God loves you and he's not ashamed of how he created you and it's, you're not a mistake. And that to me doesn't change any church teachings. It just helps you realize I can have this relationship with God and he will walk with me and he is not ashamed of me, even if I'm ashamed of me sometimes and how I feel and the thoughts that come into my mind, he is not, and he will walk with me. And I think listeners, that's our doctrine. It's to hear him and, and honor the agency of everybody, how they're hearing him that works best for them. It's not, it's not my job to get in the middle of Stephen's relationship with God. I'm not his bishop or his parents. So maybe those two groups can kind of be advisors on this road, especially for an adult. But I think we just honor, and I've learned to just say, you know, I would just say to Stephen, I'm not his bishop or his father, so I, I don't want to pretend I am, but I'd, as a friend, I'd say, Steve, I trust you. Um, and I would say, you know, you've got to write your own story, and you've got to, it's okay to listen to other stories, but at the end of the day, you've got to author your own story, and I will walk with you. And some of those stories are within church teachings, and some aren't. And we both recognize the facts of that, and I'm not going to emotionally polarize that. I'm just going to say, I'll walk with you. I like people making writing their stories as a position of strength versus fear. And I think you're writing your story in a position of strength because of all the work you've done, including your mission to get yourself in a good spot emotionally, spiritually, physically. So that's one of my advice I give to younger people is you're going to come to these forks of the road that you're kind of talking about where you're kind of eliminating the mixed orientation marriage fork. And it sounds like you're dating, you know, men and, it seems to be kind of where you're leaning right now. But I think, you know, if you're younger, I think 
you sometimes get anxiety at pre-mission age about what fork you're going to take. And I think sometimes you can just say, I'm going to become the very best personal, best I can be of myself. And that may include a mission, even if you're not sure of your future post-mission. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't think there's any requirement to know your whole future after your mission to go on a mission. <laughs> Um, and so I like where you are as you're writing your story. And I think you're doing it in a position of faith versus fear. Fear is more like I'm doing it because of what everybody else is telling me how to do it. Or I heard a story and that's my story. I think you're doing this based on the principles of the gospel. It's a relationship with God and your unique journey. So I'm not going to make, I use this line a lot. I'm not going to make you the hero one day for being celibate and, um, walking a pretty complicated road in the villain the next day, if you choose a different path, I'm just going to say, my, I'll walk with you. And this sort of unagenda um, way that I think is the kind of relationships, and I'm going to leave any judgment to our Savior and his perfect understanding. And um, brother and sister Monson, if you're le- listening, um, I hope this feels like a payday for you for the kind of parents you are. And the love your son has for you. And dad, you are my son. I love you. That will never change. To tell him that at a track meeting, meet, but then have that kind of hardwired into him, um, not knowing he had a gay son. And then that drive somewhere around Richfield, I assume. And, he, and you said the same line back to him with physical contact. And I think that was a parenting home run. And then your mom. You knew she was sad, but she was sad because she knew you were hurting for the first time. And you described my wife. <laughs> um, so I credit to you. This, there's no owner's manual for a parent in some ways how to raise a gay LDS kid. But in a way there is because you've just, you've just loved your family and said, we're going to keep the family circle together and, and love Stephen. And I love that you've got your family walking with you on this road. Um, and so I sometimes read my, one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> it's when Apollo 13 was going sideways and Gene Kratz, the NASA dude who's running the show, everybody's negative around him. And he says, with all redue, due respect, sir, I believe this is our finest hour. And maybe this is one of the finest hours in the Monson home with you being able to come out the support of your parents, your siblings, your 13-year-old niece or nephew asked, I think it was a niece that asked you that. And it's kind of a complicated space, but I think you're doing a great job as a family. I love at the end of your mission, you said something that no one's ever said before. Um, we talk about getting converted as part of serving our own missions, but you got converted, I think, with just owning being gay, which I think is a good thing. Is that what you said? And Sort of, this yeah. is part of me, and I'm accepting this, and I'm using the word converted. I thought was pretty insightful. Any more thoughts on that, or your um, family? And I don't know if you want to go back to anything I said, but you can go anywhere you want to. Oh, no worries. Um, the The thing I'll say about my family is that I just I love them very, very much, and I'm I'm very, very grateful to have them. Um, very, very lucky to have them. Um, but but yeah. Um, for for me, and, and I still had a ways to go even when I first came home from my mission, I was convinced that I was either going to be alone for my life or that I was or that I was going to force myself into a mixed orientation marriage. And if those are the solutions that other people come to for their lives, I applaud 
you that that is I in no way do I want to ever um, uh, berate your your life choices. I'll walk with you on those choices. I think we should um, fight for each other's right to to choose to live the life that we that we feel is right for us, regardless of how that life looks. Um, but yeah, I for me it was the course over my whole mission was trying to. Um, there was this internal struggle that I faced my entire mission of trying to um, reconcile my sexuality with my um, spirituality, I guess. Um, and finally, as my mission went on, I had the realization towards the end of my mission that this was, uh, this is a part of me. Um, God created me. Um, I was created in the image of God. What exactly that means, I, I don't really know. But it means that to me, it means that uh, I, I am divine in my own right, and there's I have the same divinity within me that any of my straight uh, brothers and sisters would have. Um, the the same divinity is within me, and to kind of convert myself over to accept that. I think was one of the greatest and most positive things that came from my mission. I had lots of positive experiences on my mission, met wonderful people and had a lot of friendships that I really hope endure through my life. But I do think that that was one of the most important things that came from my mission was that um, acceptance. And I do like to use the word conversion for it. Um, it was really yeah. insightful. I think that's great. And I, and I just, I, I just, think that was really terrific and one of the things i've noticed is just younger people are sort of owning this part about themselves earlier and i think it's a good thing um because they just don't go through this long sort of self-loathing that you described you mentioned pornography use i thought that was kind of brave and i've learned and i think you kind of connected the dots this is less about pornography use and more about just escaping the pain or dealing with the pain or the self-loathing or um, pornography sometimes for me is what we see above the iceberg. And if we're working to solve pornography in ourselves or helping others, and sometimes the long-term path to put that behind somebody, and I've written a little bit about this, is to sort of figure out what's at the bottom of the iceberg. And that may be just the self-loathing of not liking yourself, or it may be the need for connection or a way to escape anxiety or stress. So I think there's some um, better tools to approach that. We've had a lot of podcasts on that. So I was glad you talked on that a little bit. And I don't know if you want to talk any more about that. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I struggled with pornography addiction, I think, from starting at around age 12, um, which we don't need to get into how I was 17 when I realized I was gay, but, <laughs> um, but it, it, for, for me, I definitely think it was, it was rooted in that um, feeling of self-loathing that I had and that it was that, that, that feeling of self-loathing just caused me to develop some self-destructive behaviors, the self-harm, the, 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 the pornography usage. Um, and it's, it's a very prominent thing. Um, I, I didn't have any kind of education about gay relationships or anything that way. And that kind of was the only education I had on it, on what one would look like, which, as you can imagine, is not the best teacher. Um, pornography is not really the best teacher of my, 
much of anything. Um, it was, and it was a very harmful influence in my life and, and was something that I battled for years to try and get over. Um, but I think that if I could have, I think I would have been better off if, like you said, we need to find out what's at the bottom of the iceberg. If I had tried to, um, from a younger age, been able to accept myself and be able to stop that cycle of self-loathing, I think that it would have put me in a much stronger position to battle with that addiction. Well said. Thanks for talking about that, because there's probably listeners that need to hear some principles there that, you know, and I think my feeling is nothing we can do can take us outside God's love. That our worth is set because we're divine children of heavenly parents, listeners, and worthiness to go to the temple can come and go, um, but worth and our relationship with God is set. And if we're messing up in some way, sort of part of mortality, I think, yeah, that's a sin, but the real Satan really wins if he can separate us from the love of God. And um, yeah, pornography is a sin, but sexual orientation isn't, but kind of mixing those together can get you in a dark spot. So self-destructive is a good word. And um, so I think if those of you that are working to solve porn, I think you need to give yourself some grace and sort of what's, most of this doesn't start with one morning, what can I do to disappoint God? (laughs) Okay, here's the list of five things. I'll choose this one. Most of this starts pretty innocently out of curiosity. Then it can sometimes be a coping mechanism, but can also lead to a lot of self-loathing and shame. And um, pornography to me doesn't change sexual orientation. It's just a window into someone's sexual orientation. Sometimes we look for a backstory of why Stephen's not straight, and it's because he grew up next to power lines. I'm making things up. Um, I've never heard that before. It just came to my mind. But, you know, so, and because we want to put it back on you to undo whatever went wrong and be straight. And then there's no responsibility on us to sort of recognize this is how you came and what can we do to help you belong um that's a big shift in my lifetime as we would kind of say something went wrong if we can just kind of find the backstory and now there is no backstory this is who you are this is how you came um and it's not it it's just as good as being straight in my mind it's just part of the needed beautiful diversity um that makes us a better human family so um, and I recognize if we point to the next life and say, Steve, you'll be straight, that may cause you to feel feelings of suicide because that's my final ace in the hole to be straight. And some, and you could comment on this, some gay Latter-day Saints that I have on the podcast do want to be straight in the next life. They'd welcome just relief, but some don't want this carved out of them because they don't actually think this is a bad thing. They look at their spiritual gifts and their talents and sort of the essence, this is part of them and they don't want it to be carved out. You have, do you want to talk? I'm giving you spontaneous questions that I think oh, you've no thought. Worries. I'm sure you've thought about all this, but do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Um, and and yeah, I can handle the spontaneous questions. Um, <laughs> I get asked, I actually actually get asked a lot. Um, anyway, um, but I, I would have to put myself in probably that latter group. I. Uh, <laughs> For me, I, I mean, I know that um, doctrinally speaking, we're not supposed to understand all the mind and workingness of God. We, we, th- it's it's okay if we don't understand God's logic because God understands God's logic, um, and thank goodness for that. Um, but to me, I spent so much work loving this part of me, growing to love this part of me. Um, to me, it feels as though it would be a bit of a disservice to 
have me go through all of this work to love this part of myself only to remove it in the next. I love this part of myself. I think this part of myself is beautiful. Um, I think this part of myself gives me a perspective that I can add to God's family um, and, and to the lives of the people that I work with and, and that I work with, that I live with, that I interact with on the street. Um, I think that this gives me a sense of divine individuality, um, which I think is something that God honors. I think God honors our individuality. Um, if, if God wanted us all uniform, he would have made us that way, in my opinion. Um, and so, but I think that at the end of the day, we know next to nothing about the next life. And I think however it all works out, we'll, we'll all be happy and we'll all be pleased. We'll all be at peace. Um, for me right now, that feels to me that, uh, I don't, I don't think that I would want that carved out of me. I don't think I would want that peace carved out of me. And I personally take issue with the, the like what you said, that, uh, if, uh, if we're going to be changed in the next life, I think that that does un- unintentionally. I don't think anybody intends it to. But I think it does unintentionally create a um, a, a feeling or a, or a longing for. It, it creates an increased risk of suicidality, um, because that seems to be the. If you don't want to be gay in this life, then we move on to the next. And I just don't think that that's what God would want. But that, but that's all my own personal beliefs, and that's been my own personal conversations with my Father in Heaven, and and I'm I, I don't ever want to disrespect anybody else if they feel very strongly that God's going to change them in the next life. I don't know. I don't want to belittle anyone for because they may have a different opinion than me. All I can speak of is that for me, I've I've learned to love this part of me, and I hope it sticks around. A great answer. Thank you. Terrific answer. I wrote down the phrase you shared, divine individuality. What a thoughtful phrase. And and you're not, sometimes we're so sure about everything, but here you are saying, this is how I feel, but I'm not completely sure. And if people feel differently, that's okay. You're, it's a great model of just how to find common ground as the same human family and our differences. You're not sort of a flamethrower bomb growing type of personality, Stephen. I sense you just want to reduce divisiveness and honor other people's stories and keep us together as the same human family. You're really spiritually and kind of mature that way. You give me hope for the future. I remember teaching, I thought about this a lot because I remember when I started meeting with gay people, I'd ask them that question and I was stunned. I remember teaching a YSA class before I really stepped in this class, in this space, and this came up, and I said, well, everybody will be straight in the next life. And some of our leaders have said that, listeners. It's never been a, an official church statement where all 15 have signed off on something. So I think that's an important principle that, yes, our leaders have said that. And I put it in the first book I wrote, um, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints at Amazon or Desert Book. But I also um, recognize our church isn't really saying that anymore. And I think they're aware that that can be difficult for some and maybe cause suicidal ideation. And, and Elder Oaks has been clear, just like you commented, we, there's a lot we don't know about the next life. But I love the way you frame this up, that I've worked so hard to accept this part of me. And now I think it's a good thing, but I don't want to sort of have this carved out of me because I don't look at it as something that's a negative thing, but you create space for others. I thought that was a really terrific segment. 
other things that come to your mind you just feel impressed to share with listeners? Um, I don't know. I think that, um, don't, don't lose hope in the journey. Um, the, the, the journey may feel long and maybe lonely, but it'll be less lonely if we take it together. So don't, don't, don't ever give up and don't, don't lose that hope. Um, for me and myself, I feel that things have gotten tremendously better. I still have hard days. There's still a lot of challenging experiences in my life. Um, my, my family is wonderful. We still have disagreements as all siblings and children and parents do. Um, we have, I come from a big family. We have a diverse set of viewpoints and, um, eventually a disagreement's inevitable. That doesn't, that doesn't mean we, uh, flip the switch and we, we, we pull the plug on, on all conversation, all communication, and we, we love each other. Um, everybody has their thing and we're all, we're all everybody has their thing that they struggle with. And we're all, I think, better off if we act with compassion rather than um, anger or, or spite or, or anything that way. I think that uh, just, just don't lose hope. I'm, I'm struck by, I, I've been thinking about it the whole time that we've been talking about that, that 18 year old boy. Um, just, just don't give up. Um, don't, don't give up there's there's a a whole world of people that will love you and accept you as you are um and will walk with you on that journey um however it looks for you so i think that that's really just the big thought that's been on my mind this this time i just just don't want don't want anybody to give up let's let's keep moving forward together uh Thank you, Stephen. There's a really good Ensign article, listeners, about written by a mom who has a few adult children that have left the church. And it, the title of the article is You Love, He Saves. And it's sort of her journey to just let go of um, the maybe just the, her hopes for her adult children and the reality of the choices they make and sort of shift to my job is to preserve the family relationship. He saves, I love. and it's toxic and there's harm you know i think that was really good ben Shilotti, um who i've listened to a lot um gay latter-day saint byu honor code officer said something really interesting in one of his blog post listeners he and you may have heard this he said i thought the atonement would make me straight but it healed my broken heart and so you're smiling um i i think there's a scripture i think it's in dnc well i should know it <laughs> Christ descended below all things. So I think if you're an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint, there's, you know, I think I'm right-handed. I don't think I can use the atonement to become left-handed or change my blue eyes. Um, but the atonement, Christ descended below all things. So I think for you, knowing that your Savior can heal you, not to make you straight, if, unless that's your hope, I wouldn't want to take hope out of your life. If you feel you can use the atonement to be straight, um, go for it. But I just don't think that should be imposed by others on you. <laughs> um, and I haven't heard many stories anyway, but I wouldn't want to take hope out of it. But I love the, I do love the atonement and I do love the ministry of Christ and that he can help us in our woundedness. Um, but I like your phrase divine um, diversity or divine identity. And this is part of the same human family. Um, I don't know the sense people in Richfield may be listening. 
Um, one of my favorite missionaries, I mentioned at the beginning, but I feel impressed to share his name in case you know Elder Robin Henry. Um, if you see him, give him a hug from Elder Osler because he was a leader. I was younger and he was older and he's just one of those really quiet, deeply spiritual, deeply committed, incredible teachers in our mission in Manchester, England that I still remember his influence for good in my life. And so I assume he's still around Richfield. You may, you may know him and just give him a hug from Elder Osler. Anything else you'd like to say, Stephen, just in closing? Um, I think just in closing, just that I'm very grateful that to be here. I'm very grateful for the, the support that I have. Um, but I'm grateful for my parents, my mom and my dad, um, my grandmother, my, my siblings, my aunts and uncles, my nieces and nephews. Um, I love you all. I'm grateful for my, my friends, um, the support that they are to me. Um, and I'm grateful to have a chance to, to have a platform to, to talk about some of these things. Um, it's something that I've always been curious about doing, something I've always kind of thought about doing, but I had never really had an opportunity. I'm just very, very grateful. And I really appreciate it, Richard. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. I'm glad I acted on my impression to reach out to you. I, um, and your story is going to help a lot of people. So this is Stephen Monson, M-O-N-S-E-N. Um, just so you're looking, if you're looking on Facebook, let's spell his last name right. And Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.